Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. What happens when 100% code coverage, you just know that's not enough. You know you're not testing enough. We're talking with Mahmoud Hashemi this week about one such problem like this. Like He's working with on a project called Glom, which is very cool in itself. We also cover awesome applications and versioning. This is a real fun conversation, and I really like talking with Mahmoud. I hope you enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Listen to their segment during the show, and also check out testingcode.com slash DigitalOcean, and you can get a $100 credit towards your first project. Mahmoud, thank you for coming on Testing Code. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be back. I don't remember what... I should have looked this up. You were on before, and we talked about... Actually, it was quite a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it's been over a year, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> too long, too long. But uh, yeah, no, we talked, I think, about sort of the testing pyramid and what that meant, and like, you know, whether the kind of default prioritization is actually a good one. I think a common topic, but it's good to get a lot of data points there. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's good to have you back. You've changed what you're doing since the last time we talked. So much has changed, Brian. You know, life, (laughs) it changes. But in this case, what you call it, pretty much across the board for the better, you know, I'm just uh, back from my honeymoon and, uh, you know. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Basically, multiple weeks uninterrupted with one person. That's about as uh, intense of a stress test as you can give a relationship, especially while traveling. So, uh, did you, you make know. it through? Oh, yeah. All tests pass. Uh, c- completely green across the board. Absolutely fantastic time. If you ever get a chance to go to South Lebanon, I wholly endorse it. Ne- We'd never been before, but a uh, very nice place. Nice. Cool. You're not working at the same place you were before. I guess, that, like, my to sort of like my trajectory is sort of like keeping in line with my, uh, you know, Silicon Valley dream over here <laughs> is basically to work at smaller and smaller companies. And of course, companies, <laughs> uh, what do you call it? Like they generally grow and so forth. And But yeah, I just wanted to be at like a smaller but growing company. And so I've been at Simple Legal for about, it's been over a year now, helped grow the team here. It's been a really great experience. Looking forward to continuing it too. Nice. Are you um, doing... Uh, Python there? Absolutely. Yeah, one of the nicer things about going to smaller teams and so forth is you end up with a lot less sort of uh, politicking around uh, technologies, generally speaking. At least here, we're very much all on board with Python and Postgres, PyTest, you know, all the good stuff. Nice, nice. I like to hear the PyTest bit as well. Absolutely. Of course. You had a few things you wanted to chat about. You had sent me a list, I think, but I lost it. So, I think, and I think that was before my honeymoon. So uh, what do you call it? Like, I've cashed it back in a little bit this morning. But um, yeah, I've got even more stuff beyond that, too. Great. So, yeah. Dude, what do we want to talk about first? Sure. So let's see. I guess uh, the main thing that comes to mind, the, the biggest thing that I've had since our like you know last discussion, biggest technical thing, is uh, I wrote like sort of a data transformation library with you know my frequent collaborator, uh, Kurt Rose. And, uh, you know, it was met with some pretty uh, good success. It's sort of a new programming paradigm for transforming, especially like nested data. It's called GLOM. You know, like it sort of derives from like uh, the word conglomerate mm. but uh, or conglomerate. Conglomerate is a type of rock. Anyways, so uh, I like rock solid software. But uh, <laughs> anyways, so GLOM basically uh, allows you to transform nested data. And 
what comes along with this uh, new paradigm is like, what I really, really like about it is that you sort of give it a spec and it's kind of declarative, right? And what's nice about this is that you don't have to write a lot of brittle code with a lot of branches that are hard to reach in coverage. And uh, that's, you know, honestly, one of my favoriteest things about writing with Glom. Honestly, like, you know, having put it in practice here at Simple Legal and some side projects and so forth, I think it actually goes a little bit too far. It's a weird thing to do, maybe, to criticize your own, like, paradigm shift. If it's, It might be too early to call it that. But, yeah, so the problem so, that arises, yeah. You think it went too far, but I'm still kind of lost. So sure. how, how is it different than just non-Glom programming? Absolutely, yeah. No, I've been steeped in it for, uh, what do you call it, a couple of months now, even thinking about it on my honeymoon. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I should introduce it a little bit more. So the way that uh, Glom works is that you have some data, probably from like an API or some sort of document store. It's like lists of dictionaries, of other dictionaries, of other dictionaries. It's nested, right? It's complicated. If you just go do a request to Twitter's API or GitHub's API, you'll see the kind of data that I'm talking about. Yeah. And, well, basically, you want to go over that data and, uh, you know, transform it to fit some other shape. Maybe flatten it out, maybe filter out some things, maybe make them more consistent. And if you know the shape of the data, if you know the shape of the data coming in and you know the shape that you want going out, then Glom is what you use to get it there. It's like a templating library. If you've ever done Django or, or like Flask or this sort of thing, you know that you can sort of like take text and shape it to be like HTML. And uh, the way I introduced it when I gave a brief talk on it at PyCon was that like if you've ever seen someone use like a Django template to render JSON, right? Like it's kind of strange to use a text processing thing to render something that's actually structured. So what Glom does is it's like a text-free templating library. It's basically data to data instead of data to text, you know? Okay. And so yeah, it's really, really handy, especially when you're like, you know, making web services that need to output JSON, which is a lot of what I think a lot of us do day to day. But it's also really handy when you're like, you know, just processing JSON lines, log files, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, Actually, you have a, I'm, yeah. I'm going to use this right away. I'm kind of excited about it because I've got a problem where I've got, like, it's probably a normal problem. Uh, the output is JSON, but mm-hmm. the... Um, I don't need all of this, the junk in it. I, I only need some of the information in there and I need it in a different format. So this might be great. So no, that that's exactly what, it, what it's there for. And it's, it's very lightweight. It does have a small command line utility that is similar to the command line utility JQ, which is basically a JSON querying command line thing, but it's written, that one is written in C. This one's written in Python. Okay. Cool thing about this is that, When you use the command line utility there, it's very straightforward to turn your command line thing into a Python thing. So when you want to build up the rest of the program around that JSON query, you can do so. Oh, that's a nice feature. Yeah. And so, I mean, so many things fall out of like having a, like, even though it's basically just a single function call, you, like, so many things fall out of using it. So for instance, when you do a deep dictionary access in raw Python, you only get a key error about the very last key. And if you were, for instance, using variables in those key accesses, it's going to be kind of unclear why that like deep access failed. In the GLOM world, it'll actually give you back sort of a path 
that was followed to get to that point, and you get back a very full-featured error message that's a lot easier to debug. So that's another sort of like example of what you get with Glom. Okay. These days we're on. We've refactored the internals a lot without changing the externals too much. And these days it even supports things like deep setting. So for instance, if you have like a element tree, like you're doing XML stuff, let's face it, it has to be done sometimes. <laughs> well, you don't maybe want to make a copy of the full structure but you may have some mutation operation that could fail due to like a key not being there or something. Yeah. So we added the ability to do deep setting as well as deep getting. Nice. So yeah, we're it's very it's very active development, but I think one of its like greatest things is that like you know you you don't have to write a bunch of like rote brittle code that doesn't have that pythonicness that we want even though it is technically python. Okay. Thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. DigitalOcean is the preferred cloud platform of hundreds of thousands of innovative companies. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, manage, and scale applications with an intuitive control panel and API designed for developers. Get started with a free $100 credit towards your first project on DigitalOcean and experience everything the platform has to offer, such as cloud firewalls, real-time monitoring and alerts, global data centers, object storage, and the best support anywhere. Join over 150,000 businesses already creating amazing things on DigitalOcean. Claim your credit today at testandcode.com slash DigitalOcean. There's a couple things you said earlier. You said you were worried that maybe the went too far in the into the paradigm. Shift. Right, so exactly. So you basically end up with 100% coverage over this declarative structure because you basically just specify a dictionary or something like that. And as a constant, it doesn't need to be covered. It's just set once. It's really good for getting to 100% coverage quickly, but in reality, you're not really hitting 100% because basically, you know, there's some stuff that is happening inside of GLOM, which happens a lot more reliably and less typo-pronely than if you had done it yourself, but it's kind of like a regex, right? Okay. Like when you have a regular expression, that line gets covered, but that doesn't tell you whether it's going to do what you want. Well, you mean the coverage by, like if I were to use GLOM in my program, the mm-hmm. GLOM parts of it are going to be, any sort of test through it is going to be 100% covered because it's there's not that many lines of code. Yeah, all the, all the code that you would have written is sort of folded into the GLOM spec specification okay. for what you want the data to be shaped like. And uh, so because it's sort of like a a higher level language or a DSL, very similar to how SQL and regular expressions are embedded sub languages that we use inside of Python. The problem then is that we have to think more about the the example input and output and not... Mm -hmm not just rely on the coverage then. Exactly, exactly. And so rather than like basking in the 100% coverage, you know, we've uh, been thinking a lot lately about as we write like more and more complicated GLOM specs, how do we test these sub languages underneath and make sure that we're hitting all the corners that we think we're hitting in the test phase. I was uh, doing some research. I couldn't find a heck of a lot of stuff out there in Python at least, right, about like, you know, uh, getting coverage on SQL statements or regular expressions. And so I was kind of curious if you had any thoughts on the topic. <laughs> no, actually, that's a really interesting, uh, interesting thing. So I'm glad we're asking. Maybe somebody else out there can 
give us pointers. Of course, there's the tried and true fallback of just like writing more tests yourself. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but the, you can also like um, there's the, you know, I guess property based testing where you can try to come up with different possibilities of input mm -hmm. and categorize them and your expected output based on some property that it's supposed to keep or something. Yeah. And then throw it through hypothesis or some other property based testing tool or something. Or just like I actually usually just um, in something like that, come up with, you know, handwritten oracles and uh, putting them through as parameters into a test or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but or for instance, like a lot of uh, one example is like a lot of things that convert from one format to another. Like, for instance, um, the markdown kind of the model of markdown converters have the expected input or the input and expected output in a couple of directories with, you know, the some naming convention. And hmm. they just run the tool through and make sure that it keeps coming up with the same output all the time. Yeah. Uh, it's not pretty, but it's pretty simple to write. And since this is essentially like a data converter thing, something like that might work. But you have to have some way to come up with the Oracle then and, yeah. and know that yeah. you have all of the test cases that you could. But something like this, I, it isn't possible to come up with all of the possible test cases. Well, yeah, it, it's I mean, you could use property based testing to do some combinatoric like, you know, kind of stuff and, ha and hope the fuzzer like hits it. But like you don't get that sort of sureness that you get from seeing a line turn from red to green or yellow to green in coverage.py like HTML reports. And that does make you happy when you see those lines covered? Uh, you know, I mean, for something like I said before, right, like if I want rock solid code, right, and certain infrastructural things, you know, do need to be that solid then, yeah, I will invest the time to, like, you know, go to 100% coverage. I think right now, Glom is, like, sitting in the high 90s. I think that I might have some, plat like, version-specific stuff that isn't caught by my tests. But, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of code out there that is kind of low on coverage because coverage only captures, like, unit tests and doesn't capture, like, what happens with Selenium and so forth. But, uh, yeah, infrastructural stuff, I think, does benefit from like being fully covered well high coverage since i'm i'm not going to say that you can get full coverage of course of course no i mean like uh, you may have some like you know commented uh no cov lines or something like that so one of the things that surprised me is uh like if else for instance the uh the ternary operator mm -hmm. there's a handful of um things that can take different paths through a line of code, but it's all on one line of code sure partially covered lines yeah yeah that's not something that coverage can tell you about if one of those branches is hit, the line will be covered. So actually, like, uh, coverage.py has gotten better over time on this. I still think it's, like, it's not perfect. I mean, they're still coming out with releases that have fixes for this stuff. But it does do partial coverage, like only one branch covered here, that sort of thing. It's gotten better at it. But, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a state of the art. Definitely. It's not it's not something to you're right. It's not something to what do you call it? Like that just that color change isn't something to yeah. uh if you, you know, get, chase obsessively. Yeah, well and also if you get to hundred percent, that doesn't mean your testing is done. Exactly. No, that yeah. that is that is very true. And that's kind of what started all of this, right? Like yeah. I mean, uh Glom got us to a hundred percent on what would have been like kind of a tricky area of the code. And in many ways it is actually covered because uh Glom will produce very reliable error messages about as good as we would have manually written because a lot of these cases were erroneous cases you know like hey this key isn't set 
you know, but we yeah. were just having to do try accept ourselves and raise more semantic errors than Python's built in dictionary errors are, you know. Yeah. And so Glom produces something that is pretty close to that. And uh, so we were happy with what Glom output. But in other cases, hey, we uh, actually wanted to recover from them or have some like, you know, more complicated behavior. And uh, the Glom code was telling us we were fully covered, but we weren't really. Yeah. So interesting. Anywho. I think that coverage on sub-languages is a frontier <laughs> that we need to work on. Yeah, well, it's it's similar to the problem of uh, of how do you test a compiler because you can't possibly have all possible languages, um, all possible programs that you could write with that language. You, For sure. Yeah, how do you know if it breaks corner cases? That's why. That's why we have people that uh, really smart people working in compilers. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually something I've been like sort of growing my interest in, like sort of these DSLs and uh, more specialized like programming languages. Like Python is general purpose and it's great. But within Python, one of the things that makes it great is that it, gives, it has a great runtime and you can build other things on top of it within it. Yeah, like many languages. Yeah, and, and Glom, like, you know, if you look inside, it has an interpreter loop. It has uh, sort of the AST is what you are writing when you write a Glom spec, and it has but it has like little debug has a little debugger hook and all this sort of stuff that you would have in a in a small language, but it's actually within Python. Wow. So cool. yeah, yeah, we've been uh, Kurt and I've been experimenting with more stuff like this, and so hopefully we'll have some more stuff to share soon. In the meantime, you can check Glom out just like uh, if you go glom.readthedocs.io. I also blogged about it at like sedimental.org. I think if you just search Glom Python, it should come up. Yeah, I found it really easy. Yeah. G-L-O-M. It's <laughs> nice and short. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, not to be completely harsh on a tangent, but sure. sure, let's do a tangent. Anything else we want to talk about? Yeah, definitely. So the other thing that I've been, what do you call it, working on lately, basically nonstop since I got back from my honeymoon, is another uh, project kind of akin to uh, the Zerover thing that yeah. I launched recently. So Zerover is like when big packages have version zero despite being used by everyone. Like Bitcoin is one. Like Bitcoin is not used by everyone, but it's very broadly used. You see it covered in like, you know, mainstream news sources at this point and is technically supposedly worth $100 billion market cap. So... <laughs> And despite this, it's still version zero. Uh, <laughs> no, I so, love Zerover. And uh, yeah. the, I was actually at uh, last year at PyCon, I was sitting next to somebody from the Flask team, and they had just recently switched from from zero uh, zero versions to, they like, I don't know if, I can't no, that was this year. That was 2018. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was in 2018. And he said they didn't know about Zerover. It just happened. It was in the works for a long time. It just happens to be that before they got a chance to switch out, you got, they, you called them out on it. And but uh, it's, it's so funny. it's a real phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon. I have some stuff in production that is regrettably still zero version. I just <laughs> need to do two more things on it till it's like ready. But um, no, I mean, so it was like an April Fool's thing and it got kind of like uh, popular and people are still submitting stuff to it. So it's pretty cool. It's zerover.org. You can use the number zero or the word zero uh, v and then ver.org. And uh, so anyways, the but that was sort of tongue in cheek. That was kind of a like April Fool's thing, like I said, but I've been working on something like that. It's like one of these kind of like awesome lists. I guess maybe I should make it 
an awesome like list. So uh, you know how there's like something out there that's called Awesome Python. It might be one of the most popular repositories on GitHub or something like that. Yeah. But it's just a list of all these great Python software projects. Requests is up there and all the all the big names. Pandas, lots of good stuff. But kind of dovetailing off of the packaging stuff that I was working on for the last year or so, like just sort of documenting all the different ways that you can package Python projects, there was this really big split that I was happy to see talked about in the last episode with Brett Cannon. Like uh, libraries are not applications, you know, like most of the code that we write is structured as modules and meant to be called by other stuff. So we're kind of in this habit of thinking in terms of like modules, packages, libraries. Yeah. But a lot of the greatest software out there is actually something much bigger that we sort of forget is there. So it's the application, you know, whether it's uh, whether you're checking the gram on Instagram or uh, listening to Spotify, you know, even using Gedit or something like that. You're using something that is a Python application. Yeah. So despite being awesome and despite being Python, it's not listed in awesome Python. So, oh, right, because it's not... <laughs> It's not pip installable. It's not pip installable. That's maybe one of the biggest splits here, right? Is that libraries are by and large pip installable. Applications by and large aren't. So one of my favorite applications uh, is uh, Deluge, D-L-U-G-E. And it's like a torrenting application. And it is surprisingly robust. I see it discussed in, in forums and other places as one of the top choices if you want to just use BitTorrent. And um, there's no discussion of like, hey, it's written in Python. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> right. It's just solid on its own. And so I was very surprised when I went and I found its repo. Just a few hundred stars, I'm pretty sure. Maybe even less. I don't know. And uh, it like was being maintained with surprisingly little code. It was full-fledged. You know, you could apt install it on Ubuntu. You know, it was actually really out there and deployed. Living amongst other, like, you know, its C++ peers. Yeah. And so I was like, well, this is a real literal application like i would like to so i would read the code study the code learn its patterns right yeah so we we because of pip or pypi and um mostly because of that we've got a lot of examples that we can look at for libraries but you're right uh, examples for applications we don't i don't know how to find those right and so I've just been, it's kind of funny, I've just been thinking of every class of application that I use and typing into Google, like, text editor, written in Python, web browser, written in Python, you know, <laughs> dictionary app, written in Python, and uh, instant messenger, written in Python. And it's turned up a decent-sized list. Not huge, right? But so far, I've got probably 50 or 60 and so I've been, uh, just this morning, I was taxonomizing them. and uh, oh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, and, and when I come to my job, I'm writing an application, right? And when I'm thinking about, like, you know, a startup to start one day, right, I'm thinking about an application. I have all these great examples of libraries to learn from for, you know, my gloms and so forth. But, like, what patterns can I learn that are actually practical in applications that scale to be mainstream? And so... I've found some really cool stuff. It's it's pretty niche in some cases, but I think that this stuff is going to be a treasure trove of like real resources that people can use. And what's funny is that like it's just most of the repos only have like 100, 
200 stars on GitHub. So it's never going to be surfaced in your Discover tabs or your Explore or your newsletters or stuff like this yeah. as being Python software. And I would say at this point, about half of them are kind of focused on developers, even though they aren't really libraries. You know, so one example would be there's this one called Meld, and it's written by, I think, the like GNOME project. So it's only got like 300 stars, but I know a couple of people who swear that it's the best diffing application, and they don't even think about the fact that it's written in Python and PyGTK. Oh, I've never even so, heard of it. So. Right. It's yeah. just under GitHub GNOME Meld. It's there on GitHub, and you can see how they do their tests. You can see how they do their docs. You can see how, like, you know, sort of what design patterns they're using, what works for them. And one thing that, I mean, forgive me for sort of expounding, but like I would like to think this project could lend itself to is that if we as Python programmers like begin to use the software and then begin to sort of learn from the software we use, we probably constitute some of the best users of the software that the software could have because we would actually be able to contribute back if we were to find a bug. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, right now the list has been growing exponentially, but it's it's actually starting to like taper off a little bit, and I'm looking to get it out there probably by the time this episode airs. I don't know what your turnaround time is, but uh, hopefully it's going to be out there. And I'll, I'll I think I'll just go with that. I'll probably call it Awesome Python Applications, and um, you know it's featuring like yeah I, I mentioned Instagram, Spotify, YouTube. These are all Python applications, but I'm gonna stick to the open source ones for this list. Okay, and is this um is this gonna be just from your GitHub page? Yeah. Thing? So my GitHub is uh, just GitHub.com forward slash m a h m o u d, okay. and uh, I'll pin it. I'll pin it on the front page so you don't have to type the whole thing out. But uh, I'm finding so many cool things that even I myself want to use. Like I found several sort of like video editing and audio editing things that are written in Python. And I'm just curious, like, how usable are these things? Yeah, and it'd be great to hear both the good and the bad. <laughs> Hearing if people try stuff out and say, well, yeah, there's some caveats. If you're using it for the use model that I'm using it for, it doesn't quite work well or something like that. So absolutely good information. Well, most of the ones I'm I'm looking at here, like I mean, I am trying to keep a standard. It does have awesome in the name, so like <laughs> I'm I'm trying to pick things that are maintained and appear to have users and so on and so forth that would be actual good examples to learn from and not just use. Right, but I was I was trying to imply that sometimes people think something sucks. Not because it actually does, but because it just doesn't fit how they're trying to use it. True, true. I, I mean, I will maintain as much neutrality as possible and <laughs> open-mindedness when it comes to the good old pull request. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. That's exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm super excited. Okay. Anything else on your mind that you want to talk about? It's lately just been those two things, you know, like um, on the technical side, working on like, you know, Glom and trying to get it to the point that like, you know... I have really extensive docs written for it, and I would like there to be a testing recommendations doc. Like, I fully support that it is safer to use Glom than handwriting the stuff yourself. But that said, I don't think it's perfect. Oh, a testing testing recommendation for people using Glom and how to how to test their Glom-based application. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so that's sort of like on my mind on the technical side, and then on sort of the more content side, and like you know, sort of surveying the landscape side. It's basically been been this awesome Python applications list that I've been uh, accumulating over the years and now am like kind of focusing on. Okay. So, yeah. Now, on a, a slight tangent, we did bring up Zerover. 
You also, sure. Are you uh, maintaining Calver as well? Yeah, sure. I, I don't know if we've talked about that before, but back in like, I think 2016, I put up a site for a phenomenon I observed. I like to observe and survey the landscape <laughs> called uh, Calver, C-A-L-V-E-R.org. And it's calendar versioning. You basically set your project's release version number based on the date in some way. And so it's kind of a suite of patterns, and you can sort of uh, pick and choose as suits your needs. But, uh, you know, tons of projects do it. Like Ubuntu has 1604 because it was released in 2016, April, right? And then there's 1804, right? 2018, April. And what's really cool about that is it provides a nice semantic for Canonical where they say, look, if it's an LTS thing, we're going to support it for five years. So you look at your version, it's 16, you add five to that, right? That's 2021, right? And so you have 2021 April, your operating system is going to stop being supported. Yeah. Well, like, for instance, uh, most Python people are probably going to be familiar with it because pip changed from yeah ver- definitely version we went, we jumped from version 10 to version 18 exactly and, and a lot of people are like well what happened to the other seven versions <laughs> yeah i mean it's a it's a good question i i can see the the confusion semantic versioning has been out there for a very long time and calendar versioning is sort of like you know one of i think it's the biggest alternative to semantic versioning other than zero ver <laughs> so <laughs> so, well, so. Well, I guess you could be Zerover and Calver if you own, if the last time you released your software was in 2000. I, yeah, that's true. I guess that's true. I have not found that uh, <laughs> out there. I, was, I thought for a second you were going to say year zero. and uh, But uh, yeah. depending on your calendar, there is no year zero. Uh, anyways, but yeah, so with calendar versioning, uh, I just sort of like made, with Calver.org, I just sort of made a list of big projects using it, Ubuntu being among them. But also like sort of one my big question with it is um with semantic versioning, we try to make it so that the um one of the promises with that some people make with semantic versioning is we're not gonna break backwards compatibility except for possibly at major version numbers. Right. So how do I is there some con- consistency with Calver? Like we're we're only gonna break your API once a year? Or this is sort of like deep versioning discussion. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I don't know how many people we're talking to right now, but I have definitely <laughs> thought on, thoughts on this. But yeah, so in brief, like uh, what I would point out is that most mature software projects are adopted by enough people that it makes sense to sync with the calendar anyways, right? Because yeah. those people out there have software release schedules. The rubber has to meet the road somewhere. I think most of, you know, sort of the vocal developers online, you know, including you and me, you know, we think a lot about those early phases in the project where we want to have that utmost freedom to break stuff at any time. And the thing is that most software projects sort of mature past that phase. And that's when versioning starts to matter most because that's when you have the most users. Yeah. So, you know, with my application that I work on at work, Simple Legal, we actually do weekly releases and they're calendar based. And, you know, we basically have an SLA for our customers and contracts and that sort of thing. So we don't like to what you call it, just phase something out really, really fast. So we give them a certain period of time and there's like a version number that helps guide us to make sure we're not breaking things too quickly. That actually makes a lot of sense because I was thinking about semantic versioning and sometimes if a team wants to change something and remove something, well, then they just bump the semantic version. But that's, if it happens too fast, actually users of it will complain and go, 
I just changed my code to fit this, and then you remove it. Yeah. So, like, I think that the semantic that matters the most is how long something is going to be supported for. Most yeah. of us probably believe that, like, you know, software is not math; it's not forever. And so, like, with Twisted, I think is a great example of this. They have a open stated like you know sort of deprecation policy that something is going to be deprecated for at least six months or something like that and you can infer like you know how long your feature is going to be okay for based on the version of twisted that you're using and that's a really powerful uh, mechanism a lot more so than trying to remember whether something gets dropped in 8.0 or 9.0 or 14.0 i mean that's true. They're, especially like if you've looked at like WebKit and the browsers, they move so fast that the, the numbers stop meaning anything. And you just wish that you could anchor it to something else. Like, you know, if I were to tell you version 181, when was that released? You have no idea. Right. You know, so. Okay. Interesting. Well, okay. Well, I'm glad I asked. So yeah. um, that was a fun chat. And hopefully we'll, I'm sure we'll have an excuse to bring you on and chat again yeah hopefully hopefully you know awesome python applications comes out and you know some tests and code like contributors uh help me find some of these hidden gems yeah i think definitely we can come back on we can come back on and maybe talk about like a survey of testing strategies from real life open source applications oh that'd be great yeah cool yeah awesome looking forward to it well thanks a lot and we'll talk to you later yeah thanks very much thanks again to mahmoud for talking with me today also, thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Again, check out what they have to offer at testingcode.com slash DigitalOcean. They'll give you $100 credit towards your first project. That link is also on the show notes page at testingcode.com slash 55. And thank you. Thank you for listening, for sharing the show with friends and colleagues, for supporting the show through Patreon, and for using the link in the show notes to try out DigitalOcean. That's all for now. Now go out and test something.